This morning, we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we've called An Uncommon Fellowship. We're looking at the characteristics uh, that make the church the church from Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47. In so doing, we're trying to figure out and to learn uh, who we are as a church, to hear God's call and his vision uh, for us as a fellowship uh, in our place and time. And this morning, uh, we're going to narrow in on just a couple of verses here uh, and then a, a passage that supports it. But Acts 2, 46 and 47 tells us this about the early church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, we've said about this passage that it's clear that what the author is doing is he's painting a picture of the early church as a family. They are treating one another with the level of investment, the level of love, the level of kind of whole life togetherness that in the ancient world, as in our own, would only mark uh, the life of a family. But what we see in these verses is that though they were a family, they were an uncommon family because they, they extended an uncommon level of welcome to outsiders. They were a family of uncommon welcome tight-knit and intimate and loving with one another, but always willing to make room around their table for one more, always willing to open the doors of their church and of their homes wide. This flies in the face of what many communities uh, experience in this world. Many times we believe that we have to choose between close-knit intimacy and togetherness inwardly or openness to new people and new life. And so what we want to do is to hear God's call to hospitality in the church, to uncommon welcome. And so we are going to also read a, a passage uh, from the book of Hebrews, uh, from Hebrews chapter 13. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. A couple of weeks ago, you may have seen in the news uh, that the United Kingdom, appointed a new division of its government, they appointed a person to lead what they call the Ministry of Loneliness. They appointed a, a, a bureaucratic position called the Minister of Loneliness to help, identify, to help solve what they've identified as an epidemic in English culture, which is loneliness. Loneliness, people uh, feeling alone. They recognize that there's certain populations that are most prone to loneliness. It's most common among the elderly, among the disabled, among the disadvantaged. But they recognize that loneliness 
uh, has become a chronic problem in the UK. It was all over the news. Some uh, mocked it. Stephen Colbert uh, defined this as a typical British attempt to find the most bureaucratic possible answer to one of the most ineffable human problems, right? To think that by simply appointing a government agency over a problem as universal as loneliness, uh, that somehow it's going to go away. But it is a universal human hunger that we do all know on some level the ache of loneliness. In a secular world where many of the institutions that used to bind us together, the town, the church, the family, the extended family, have started to deteriorate, more and more people uh, drift through this life feeling alone and in need of belonging. At a time in my life where I was particularly adrift, I felt uh, the blessing and comfort of a family that took me in. I was uh, living away from home for the first time, living in Memphis, Tennessee as a college student. And there was a family there, uh, the Harcourt family of East Memphis, who took me into their home. I didn't move in with them, but every Tuesday night, they would prepare for me, a college student, a homemade meal. I would come in after class or after football practice. I would sit down at their table, and this was a family that had moved there. She was from uh, Arkansas. He was from Mississippi. She knew how to cook. Um, And I would, immediately as I walked in, the smell uh, would hit me. The smell of home, the smell of a home-cooked meal. And I would sit down and they would feed me. And this was at a time in my life where feeding me was not cheap. This was, uh, this was 15 years ago. I was 15 years younger, about 50 pounds heavier. Uh, and I could put away some food. And they never said, enough, Dave, stop. Do you think, it's, you, know, think you had enough? Um, but they always extended an open chair whenever I needed it. Come uh, holiday time, when I was prone to homesickness, they would invite me over uh, to help them trim the Christmas tree. If it was a, ho- a holiday that I wasn't traveling for, I was always welcome there. One Easter, uh, they even hosted me and my family uh, around their table. They invited me in uh, both to the good and the bad of their family life. Uh, after a few times, any pretense of dressing up the dinner table or pretending that their two pre- pre-teenage girls were easier than they were uh, was long since gone. I remember one meal sitting through it in virtual silence between the husband and the wife. Because the day before, he had bought an old Harley Davidson without her knowing it. And um, he'd spent a substantial sum of money. And so that day, it was, Dave, please tell my husband to pass the potatoes. (laughs) Dave, please tell my wife she's welcome. But they didn't try to dress themselves up. They didn't try to feel the pressure uh, to have to be Martha Stewart in order to entertain. But they invited me in as I was. They opened their family as it was. And it created for me a home away from my home. And that's what hospitality does. Hospitality creates belonging where there is none. Hospitality creates welcome where there's loneliness. It embraces uh, the stranger and brings them into the sheltering arms of kindness and friendship. It's the call uh, to hospitality. The world is in need of the church's hospitality. You know, for most of the church's history, uh, the church has felt the call to hospitality. Many of the institutions of hospitality that we have today exist because of the church. It was the church uh, that pioneered hotels and hostels for the traveler and for the stranger. 
It was the church that invented the hospital to show hospitality to the sick and to the dying. It was the church uh, that invented the orphanage to provide shelter and home for the fatherless and the motherless. It was the church that invented the shelter to bring the homeless in off the streets, places like uh, the city rescue mission. These exist because the church heard God's call to hospitality for the stranger, for open welcome. The Benedictine Monastery uh, was one of the great innovations of Christian hospitality, a community of men and women giving their life to living life before God as a community of faith. And one of the most revered uh, and highly thought of jobs in the monastery under the rule of Benedict was the job of porter. It was the porter's job to answer the door. Uh, This does not sound like a glamorous or sexy job, but it was one of the most uh, respected and revered roles in the monastery, was to be the one who went when they heard the knock on the door to receive guests. One uh, contemporary Benedictine put it this way. He says, the way that we answer doors is the way that we deal with the world. The way that we answer our doors is the way, that we deal, or the way that we deal with the world. And so as soon as a guest knocked on the door of a monastery, the porter was to greet them uh, with the greeting, thanks be to God, your blessing please. The way we welcome the stranger at our doors, the way we deal with the world. Ugh. That is, that is convicting. I have to be honest, I do not often answer an unanticipated knock on my door with thanks be to God, blessing please. It is not uncommon uh, for me to greet uh, a knock on my door by slinking around to a window, (laughs) trying to crack quietly the shutters to see if I recognize the person, (laughs) or perhaps if it's the wrong time to stay in bed in hopes that they will just go away, thinking there's nobody there. We're protective of our time. We're protective of our privacy. We don't like to be inconvenienced. We treat uh, the knock on the door most often as an intrusion. And so we need all of us uh, today to hear again the church's call to hospitality. Our church is called to be a hospitable church, to be a church where there are no strangers uh, in the church and among us, and a church where we offer easy hospitality to our neighbors, to strangers, and to those unlike us. And so let's look at the hospitality uh, that we're called to. You know, the early church here in Acts chapter 2, you know, there hasn't been a command. Uh, Remember, Peter just preached the Pentecost sermon. This is a new church. Thousands have come into their midst and joined the church. And there was no time where Peter said, hey, and by the way, God wants you to practice hospitality. But what they did is they picked up the storyline of the Bible. They picked up on what has always been the practice of God's people, to show hospitality to the stranger. And so they began doing what God's people have always done. In Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 8, we see one of the, the quintessential stories of biblical hospitality, where Abraham and Sarah receive three strangers and prepare a meal, to, meal for them. It's a story full of blessing and mystery. We're told later that these were divine guests. Those are the guests that the author of Hebrews is referring to when he says that some, they've entertained angels without being aware of it. That God came to Abraham and to his wife Sarah in the form of a stranger and was the recipient of their hospitality. 
In the Old Testament, we see God's people again and again called to extend hospitality to travelers and strangers because they themselves, through much of their history, lived as strangers and travelers through land that didn't belong to them. So they were called to show that hospitality. A couple of months ago, we preached uh, through the book of Ruth, which, if you remember, is the story of God's community, his people's hospitality to a stranger, to a Moabitess woman who was not from their place, who didn't speak their language, who didn't know their gods, and was welcomed in as a stranger under the sheltering wing of their hospitality. It's the way that God's people were supposed to work. In the Gospels, we see Jesus constantly, constantly, constantly at meals. Very often, he is the welcomed guest of other people, taking advantage and living in the midst of their hospitality, their home-cooked meals, their soft bed, their place of shelter, the welcomed guest, the welcomed sojourner. Other times, more often perhaps, he's the unwelcomed guest, the guest who instead of receiving the welcome of, their, of his people, receives their rejection and their condemnation. But Jesus is constantly giving and extending hospitality, preparing meals, sometimes miraculously, for the people around him. We see in the pages of the Bible that God himself is a host. Right? He creates Adam and Eve and he places them in a garden where every one of their needs is met, where every one of their appetites is satisfied. He feeds them and he cares for them. He is their host. When he redeems his people out of Egypt and leads them into the wilderness, we're told that he prepares a table for them in the wilderness, that he feeds them miraculously with manna from heaven, that he he quenches their thirst miraculously with water from the rock. He hosts his people uh, throughout their journey. In the New Testament, we get this amazing key to understand that. When various authors tell us, Jesus himself tells us that he is the bread from heaven, Right, that he is the manna that fell on his people to satisfy their hunger. That he is the rock in the wilderness that was struck to pour out life for his people. And so in this amazing and beautiful way, God himself is both the host of his people as well as the meal and the drink. Jesus uh, is our host and he is the meal itself. And this is really key. Uh, to hearing the call to hospitality, right? The answer to figuring out how do I become more hospitable? How do we as a church become more hospitable? Never starts with simply saying, oh yeah, you know what? I guess I probably should, right? In the midst of the busyness and overwhelmingness of our lives, we, I think we all know that we probably should entertain more, right? That we probably should try to be nicer and make more room in our lives. But, but simply feeling like you should do more is never enough. It's never a sufficient motivation, right? That might get you to invite one of your neighbors over once, but it's not enough to compel a lifestyle of hospitality. The only thing that'll actually create a lifestyle of hospitality within us is for us to begin to realize that you wake up every single day of your life into a world where you are the desired guest of God himself where he desires to welcome you, no longer a stranger, but now a friend. That he desires to gather you to himself, to hold you in fellowship with him, to feed you with his very presence, the very broken body and shed blood of his son. Christian hospitality always begins first with recognizing that we are God's treasured guests. 
that we are the guests that God loved and uh, so dearly and deeply, that he sent no better invitation than his own son, that at the, that at the cost of his own son's life, he gathered us to himself. Jesus tells us this incredible story in Luke chapter 14. He tells the story, he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who throws a banquet. And he sends out the first round of invitations to all the best guests. And one by one, they decline his invitation. One says, oh, I'm about to give a child away in marriage. I can't go. One says, I've just taken a wife. One says, I've just planted a field. One says, I've just bought an ox. And so what does the banquet uh, host say? He says, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. So the master said to his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Christian hospitality begins by recognizing that that's us, that we are the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. We are the ones who, left to ourselves, would be far off and outside of the Father's house, but that he sent his son, his servant, to gather us in, blind and crippled and lame, that each of us is invited. Christ, uh, theologian Christine Pohl put it this way, the practice of Christian hospitality is always located within the larger picture of God's sacrificial welcome of all who will come to him. And so once you find yourself in this story, once you find yourself as the treasured guest of God, you begin to get new eyes to look out and to see your neighbors. You begin to see your neighbors not with the eyes of suspicion or fear or prejudice, but you begin to see your neighbors actually as God has seen you. You see your neighbors as God's desired guests, those that God, sent his son for, those that God longs to welcome into his family, those that God longs to seat around his table. In a world full of strangers, we're called to see them not as enemies, but as God's desired guests. Right? In a world where we as a church often feel uh, threatened, God's answer to his church is not to build higher fences, but longer tables to create more space in our lives and in our communities to welcome the stranger, to welcome those we do not know. And so uh, we're called to hospitality. And yet it's hard. It presents its challenges, right? Despite the immense amount of internal resources that we have in the gospel, despite the fact that our story tells us that yes, we are God's desired guests, yes, we should extend his welcome to others, in the, in the daily stuff of everyday life, in our lives marked by busyness and conflicting priorities, actual hospitality is incredible, incredibly challenging. And it always has been. It was for God's people in the Old Testament. It was for God's people in the early church. And it is for us today. So let's look at that passage from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. This is another church. Uh, we don't know all the details of the community that received this letter or even the author himself. But we know that this is another church within the first century of the early church. 
And already they are starting to bump into the roadblocks, to the challenges that would keep them back from extending hospitality. So he starts by saying, let brotherly love continue. Right, brotherly love, uh, that, uh, that philos love, the love of family, the love that marked the Acts 2 church, the love that binds us together as brothers and sisters, as an extended family in Christ. He's saying, let that inward love continue. Continue to show loyalty and sacrifice and commitment to your family in Christ. Let brotherly love continue. But do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Right? So within the midst of that brotherly, familial love, don't forget the stranger. Right? He wouldn't be saying this if they weren't tempted to neglect the stranger. Right? If there wasn't already setting into their life that started out marked by hospitality, now the beginning of a, of a way of life that neglected the stranger. And so he starts to address some of the things that lead us to neglect the stranger. And the first thing is just the strangeness of strangers, right? Strangers are strangers because they're strange, right? They're not like you. They're not like me. The stranger uh, in the Bible is the one whose life, whose customs, whose way of doing and being in the world is different and other than yours. And so he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't let their strangeness, their otherness from you, lead you to keep your distance, right? Um, it is hard enough in our lives to show hospitality to people who are like us, isn't it, right? If you, if you were to just focus on extending hospitality, having people over for dinner and such, to the people who live, let's say, on your block. That would be hard enough in and of itself. But in a city like Jacksonville, the people on your block are probably far more like you than unlike you. Right? We live in a city that's already segregated by race, by socioeconomic level, in some ways by lifestyle. Drive through our neighborhoods come election season. Right? You'll see some neighborhoods that are more prone to Hillary signs, some that are more prone to Trump signs. Right, that we tend to self-sort ourselves by people that are already like us. And it's already hard to be hospitable within that group. It's already hard enough to, to overcome just the barriers of busyness and distance. But the church here is called to also overcome the barriers of strangeness. Going over to somebody's house who might serve food that you didn't grow up eating. Sitting around somebody's table where conversation may go to topics where you don't agree. And yet the church is called to overcome the barriers of strangeness to become a church, to become a family. And so the author says, don't let the barriers of strangeness call you uh, to love one another. You know, one of our deep desires as a church, when we talk about being an uncommon fellowship, we talk about being a church that's not defined by race or class or socioeconomic structure. I remember Randy Neighbors, who some of you met when he was here in town leading our vision weekend, uh, a man who's led, you know, for 30 plus years has led a, a, a multicultural church. 
And one of the things that he said that stuck with me uh, in conversation was he says that planning a church is already hard enough and you are choosing to make it harder when you choose to embrace the stranger, when you choose to reach out across the lines of normal human community and seek to be an uncommon community of faith. But that's what we believe uh, that we're called to do is to overcome even that barrier. The second barrier that the author of Hebrews uh, brings to our attention is the lack of empathy that we find in ourselves. Look at verse three. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. What he's saying is look out on your neighbors with the eyes of empathy, right? You may never have been in prison, but you can imagine what it would be like to be there, right? You can know what it would be to be cut off from your loved ones. You can know what it would mean to have your basic daily freedoms taken away from you. Who would know what it means to live with the fear of that, with the loneliness of that, with the hopelessness of that, right? Some of you have been through that. Some of you, even if you hadn't, are called in these verses to put your life imaginatively into the midst of that life and to view them through the eyes of empathy. We're called to view those who are mistreated through the eyes of empathy. To say, I, can ima- I, I also am in the body. I also am a human being with fears and loneliness and distresses. And so we're called to so identify with our neighbor that we say, I know what it means that we share a common humanity, that I can feel the pain of your hunger, that I can feel the ache of your loneliness, that I can feel the poverty and the hopelessness that comes with that. And so in empathy to extend kindness, right? That's what the Harcourt family did for me. It wasn't that they themselves were, their, their, their own children were, were still too young to be Uh, off in college somewhere. But they could say, look, I know what it would be like. I'd want a family to take my kids in, right? Maybe when I was in those shoes, when I was a new new person, new in town, I wanted to be taken in. And so we too can extend uh, through empathy love for those who suffer. Next, he calls our attention to a lack of boundaries. Verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Right, some of you were reading that and going, what on earth does that have to do with hospitality? Right, why did he sneak in uh, this bit about adultery and keeping the marriage bed pure uh, when he's encouraging them towards hospitality to the stranger? Here's a a one-sentence summary. Just because you open your home doesn't mean you have to open every room in the house. Um, just because you open the dining room doesn't mean you have to open the bedroom. Uh, just be- and you might think, Dave, this is not particularly a problem for me. I never felt uh, when I was contemplating whether or not I was going to invite the neighbors over, uh, that was not on the menu. I, never, I, did, I didn't expect uh, that this dinner party would go there. But in the ancient world, In the ancient world, the Christian church was countercultural by inviting people into their home for parties, but yet still having boundaries over their most intimate relationships. In the third century, one of the early Christian apologists, uh, in a letter 
in a letter to an early opponent of Christianity, this is uh, known to us as the epistle to Diognetius. He's talking about the countercultural way of life of the early church. And among other things, it's a fascinating document. He says this. He says, like others in our world, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. Right? So they marry and they have children, but if they have too many children or if they have a girl and wanted a boy, they don't abandon that child to the trash heap, as was common in the Roman world. Instead, they keep them. They don't expose them. They share their homes, but not their wives. They share their homes, but not their wives. So, all right, what does this mean for us? Um, first, you take it at face value. If you, if you thought you needed to share your bedroom, you don't, to show hospitality. But what this means is that there is room in our lives for levels of intimacy, right? We, all of us, uh, we have a, a circle of tightest intimacy, Right, if you're married, your spouse uh, is the recipient of intimacy with you that no one else is a recipient of. Right, your, your children are also a part of that more intimate circle. Your family, your, your brothers and your sisters, your cousins and your grandparents, the, that is, that's, a, that's a level out, but still a level of intimacy that we're called to cherish and to protect and to value. But there are other levels of intimacy that are less deep, that are less vulnerable, but are no less beautiful and real. And that's what we're called to invite people into in hospitality, right? That we're called to live in this balance where we protect our most cherished intimate relationships, but that in protecting those relationships, we don't so or orient our lives around those relationships that we no longer have room for our neighbors, that we no longer have room for our friends, that we no longer have room for the stranger. Right, that there's a balance that's to be struck in our lives between focusing on our most intimate commitments and leaving space, leaving open seats around the table, leaving an open front door to our friends and our neighbors. And that's a tension that we're called, if we're gonna live a vital life in Christ with others, that we're called to balance our energy and our time between. Right, there should, if you're married, there should at times be conversations where you're saying to yourself, do you feel like we're, spending too much time with just one another or with just us and our nuclear family? Do we need to sacrificially look to make more room in our lives for the stranger, for the outcast, for the, the one who might not have a full dinner table to gather around tonight? And on the other hand, you need to have the conversation of have we made too much room in our lives to where our lives are always so overrun with other people that we're no longer connecting and protecting that most intimate of relationships. And so we're to live in a balance uh, between those two things. So the other obstacle is a lack of boundaries. And then a lack of contentment. A lack of contentment can keep us from hospitality. Verse five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will never share your life freely and openly with others if you hate it, right? If you despise the life that God's given you, if you look at your home and you say it's not big enough, if you look at your family and say, oh, they're too messy and too unruly, right? If you look at your own life and say, what do I have to offer or to give to anyone? Then of course you will never ever 
open up your home, right? You'll never share what you have if you're convinced you don't have enough. You'll never invite people in if you're ashamed and feel like if people step into my front door, they're going to judge me and they're going to see what I see and they're not going to like it. The practice of hospitality requires a contentment with the life that God has given us. It requires a basic trust that we can share what we have in the knowledge that God will provide more for us, right? That we're not going to share our way into lack. That we can open our homes and trust that even if we're not opening the doors of a mansion, that what we're extending and extending our open lives to others is a blessing to them. Apart from contentment, we will never show hospitality. And listen, I think this is a huge issue in our culture. I think it's a, we live in the South where when you talk about hospitality immediately, I think this is especially true of the women in our culture. When you hear that you're being called to hospitality, very often the first thought that you have is, oh no, right? That means that I'm gonna have to reproduce a Southern living tablescape. That means that I'm gonna have to have my kids just as, as perfectly ironed and pressed and neat and be, well-behaved as I can possibly have them. It means I'm gonna have to prepare a, a meal like it just came out of Paula Dean's oven, right? That I'm gonna have to have this perfect home to invite people into. And I think that's a huge barrier in real life, messy life, to keep us from actually doing this together. I wanna share with you a beautiful quote. Uh, this is from Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she, she herself was an adult convert to the faith. Uh, she was converted uh, through the hospitality of a Christian pastor and his wife. Uh, she was actually, she was a college professor who was doing research on the prejudice of the conservative religious world. And so she set this up as an interview and then this family just kept inviting her into their home over and over and over again. And so now she's a believer. Uh, she's married and she and her husband practice uh, every Sunday. They, they have an open table and welcome in guests. And I just think this is a, a beautiful call for all of us. She says, don't let pride stop you from opening your home. Ignore the cat hair on the couch or in the mac and cheese. It likely won't kill anyone as decisively as loneliness will. Add as much water to the pot to stretch the soup as you have to. If you run out of food, make pancakes and put the kids in charge of making that meal. See how much fun that is? And know that, is some, that someone is spared from another humiliating fall into internet pornography because he is instead walking with you and your kids and your dog as you share the Lord's day. One model of how the Lord gives you daily grace and one way of escape. Know that someone is spared the fear and darkness of depression because she is needed in your house. Always on the Lord's day, the day she is never alone but instead safely in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied upon. Know that someone is drawn into Christ's love because the Bible reading and psalm singing that come at the close of the meal include everyone and that it reminds us that no one is scapegoated in this Christ-bearing community. Know that host and guest are equally precious and fragile and that you will play both roles throughout the course of this life. The doors here open wide. They must. The beauty of the vision of welcoming into your home far outweighs, far outweighs your fear and your anxiety about whether you have enough, 
about whether your house and your welcome is needed and good enough. Don't let the fear and the lack of contentment keep you from opening your life. And then finally, uh, the author of Hebrews draws us to the fear of rejection that keeps us from practicing hospitality. Look what he says in verse six. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is an admitted vulnerability when you invite someone into your life, whether it's inviting someone into your home or just being willing to go first in relationship, being willing to reach out by text or by phone call or by in person and saying, hey, do you want to grab, you want to grab lunch? Do you want to grab coffee? There is an inherent vulnerability that comes in going first, that comes with initiating, that I think is hard for every single one of us, whether you are the most extroverted person in the room or whether you're an introvert. There's something about initiating in a relationship that makes all of us feel like an insecure, uh, you know, teen. I remember actively the feeling of being a middle schooler, wanting friends, and reaching out to somebody and and saying, hey, you want to be friends? You want to to get together and play basketball or you want to come to my house? There's a vulnerability, uh, a risk that comes in that. That the author of Hebrews is saying, unless you have the resources of the gospel to overcome them, can paralyze you your entire life. Unless you realize that there is nothing that man can do to you. Right, basically, the worst somebody can do is say no. Right, the worst thing that can happen, and they're probably too nice to say no, they'll probably say I'm busy or something. Right? But, but what happens if you live in a community where no one's willing to embrace the vulnerability of initiating and going first is you end up with a community, we'll call it this church, of 150 people sitting by the phone and waiting for it to ring. Right? 150 people showing up to church and saying, man, I hope somebody invites me to lunch after today. I sure would love to not just go to church, not talk to anybody, and then go home. And I think we tend to project motives and we think, well, everybody else, they're full, they're happy. They've got, everybody else has friends. I'm the only one that's hungry for a relationship. And so we let our insecurity keep us back. But in Christ, we should, we should each of us be willing to reach across the aisle and to go first. And to say, hey, let, you want to get together? You want to do something? And so I want to just end with two very clear challenges two practices that I'd like you to consider adopting in your life. You know, until you change your habits, you really haven't changed anything. Until you change your actual, the actual practices of your life, it hasn't really started to take root. And so two challenges for you. One is once a month, once a month, initiate with somebody in this church that you don't know well. Once a month, initiate with somebody in this church that you don't know well. That might be inviting them over to your home for a meal. It might just be inviting them to go to lunch after church or inviting them just out to a restaurant or something. But be willing to initiate with someone that you don't yet know. Think about the difference that that would make in the culture of a church over one year. One year, if every one of our members took once a month, got together with somebody they didn't know, we would begin to be knit together in a web of hospitality and love. Uh, that would make a real and lasting difference uh, in the makeup and character of our church. So once a month, extend hospitality to, you, to someone you don't know. The stranger they are, the better. The more unlike you they are, 
the better. And then once a month, once a month, reach out uh, to a neighbor who's far from the church and invite them into your life or into your home. Practice hospitality uh, to someone outside the walls of the church. Invite them into your life. Invite them into your home. If they seem in need, invite them into our church. Practice hospitality to those who need a place of belonging. I was inspired this week uh, by the story, a story a friend of mine told, a friend of mine named Doug who pastors in Oklahoma City. He told me about a church, a small church in Lawton, Oklahoma, Beale Heights Presbyterian Church. I've never heard of it. If you Google it, they don't have a website. It's a small, tiny church in rural Oklahoma. And after Hurricane Katrina, they appealed to have their church basement turned into a Red Cross shelter. And so they took in 51 refugees from New Orleans and the surrounding areas into their tiny little church, a church that had every right to look at themselves as most would and say, what do we have to offer uh, to a crisis hundreds of miles away? But they opened their church basement. Uh, They had it turned from classrooms and storage space into bedrooms and showers and bathrooms and bunkhouses. And they hosted 51 people. They committed to themselves that these people weren't going to be problems to be managed. They weren't going to be an inconvenient guest, but they were going to be made to feel like loved members of the community. They were invited into homes. They helped them connect with work. They helped them find uh, places and ways to put their life together. The church had received a gift through an inheritance that they felt led uh, to spend by giving every one of those 51 people $2,000 to help them get their life on track. And what happened in this church as the months rolled on is better homes became available, as better hotels began to extend space, is that no one wanted to leave this church basement. When their homes uh, back in the South began to be safe to return to, Many of these people said, this is our family now. We can't leave Lawton, Oklahoma. And so they put down roots and they joined the church and they became a part of the community and they found jobs and they started businesses. This tiny little rural church that had previously been entirely white now became a diverse church. Suddenly, as they welcomed uh, these refugees from New Orleans, the fabric of their lives was changed. The fabric of their church was changed. And a beautiful witness was lifted up for the people of Oklahoma, for the people of, uh, that were affected by Katrina. That is the beautiful power of gospel hospitality. And may that, uh, over time, uh, be the path and the reputation of this church uh, here in North Riverside. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would find our life and our fullness around your table, that we would know ourselves to be your desired and beloved guests, No longer strangers, but sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, help us to find our fulfillment around your table and to recognize that in your grace, in your economy, the supply never runs out. There's always another open seat. There's always more food and wine to be poured. Lord, we pray that we would be a church of uncommon welcome and radical hospitality. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.